because that's where I'm going to be. Now, I suppose that if I were to ask um, the kids in this church or if you were to ask um, your kids or your grandkids, what do you want to be when you grow up? You would probably receive a wide range of answers from I want to be an astronaut or I want to be uh, an athlete. I want to be a professional athlete or a veterinarian or a doctor or a fireman or something along those lines. But I can almost guarantee that none of your kids are going to, if you were to ask them, would say, I want to be an accountant. Not that there's anything wrong with being an accountant. In fact, we're grateful for accountants. It just doesn't have the, the glamour, the glitz, as does an astronaut. Many of your kids may grow up and actually become accountants, praise God. But while they're kids, they're not thinking, yeah, I just want to look at numbers and data and names and, and all of this, these spreadsheets. That excites me. Probably isn't going to happen. And so as we come to the book of Numbers, one of the things that most people will, will say is like, why do we have all these names? And in the first couple of chapters, we're going to have a lot of names. And a lot of numbers. And what do we do with them? And, and I don't get it. And why does God think it's important to give us all of these things? I know it's God's word. And I trust that it's God's word. But I don't get it. Let me suggest to you that every single one of you love names and numbers. There's not a soul in this building that does not love names and numbers. If you are a sports fan, you love things like numbers like ERAs and RBIs and quarterback ratings. And, you lo and some of you maybe could even tell me the starting rotation of pitchers for the 1955 Dodgers. You love names. You can tell me their ERAs from five decades ago. You love names and you love numbers. I'm a big hockey fan. And so I have to deal with French Canadian names and Eastern European names that I cannot pronounce. But I'm very interested in the fact that this individual is six foot three, 185 pounds and shoots left handed. The Tour de France started yesterday. Isn't this a great time of year? The Stanley Cup finals and the Tour de France both going on at the exact same time. Do you know this is like the best thing that's happened in 2020? But I look at the Tour de France and is Primo Roglic actually going to have enough wattage to, to, hold, everybody, to hold off guys like um, Michael Kwiatkowski? I mean, we got all kinds of, you know, and how about Fabio Aru? What do you think about him? We love names and numbers. Maybe you're not an athlete or you're not into sports, but you're into finances. And you know the names of that obs those obscure companies. And you know their numbers. You know their profit and loss. You know their earnings. And you know their earning potentials. You know their little symbol on the Dow Jones or the NASDAQ or the S&P or whatever board they're on. You know each of their symbols and you know their numbers. You know their CEOs. You know names and numbers. 
Everybody is interested in names and numbers. One commentator put it this way. Maybe you're not into sports. We could just go on and on. But maybe you're not into sports or into finances. But I thought this was a, a good illustration as he was speaking with his wife. Honey, Jeremy just called and they had their baby. The wife responds, is it a boy or a girl? What's his name? How much does he weigh? How long was he and how long was the labor? Right? Names and numbers are important to everybody. So as we come to the book of Numbers, we come to these passages perhaps as the non-sports fan reads statistics in the sports section of the newspaper. We know they're important, we just don't know why. I hope as we go through this, we might be able to come to a bit of an understanding as to why the names and numbers might have some relevance to us in our lives today. Let me give you a review of where we've been. I want to remind you of a passage of text that we we centered on last week, and that was 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. And I want to read that for you again, where Paul is writing to the Corinthians, obviously, and he says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. A couple of things here that we want to make note of. These things actually happened. Three of the four references there come from the book of Numbers. So Paul is referring us back to the book of Numbers, and he's saying that these things actually in history occurred. These are not just ancient fables from a, a, a long past time, but rather these are events that actually occurred, and they happened to them as an example, but they are given to us for our instruction. The other thing we should note, and I hope you will Um, recognize as we go through the book of Numbers that the gospel is not a new invention. In fact, look at what Paul writes. We must not put Christ to the test as they did. Paul is saying that the, the, the Exodus generation in the book of Numbers put Christ to the test. Christ is not some new Johnny come lately on the scene individual, but rather the gospel and the gospel is not some new invention. Jesus is not some hero who just arrives late in history, but rather he the, the gospel has been the center of biblical revelation from Genesis chapter one all the way through Revelation, the end of the book of Revelation. The gospel has always been central in Scripture. And so we're going to find, don't be surprised that we're going to find it in the book of Numbers. We're going to see Christ in the book of Numbers. Paul found Christ in the book of Numbers. He says we don't put Christ to the test. So, um, and in fact, in in Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus, when he's talking to the the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, what, what does he do? He says, don't you know that all the scriptures speak of me? And then he took them through Moses. And the prophets, Moses. What did Moses write? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. 
Christ is saying, I'm in that book. I'm there. So as we go through numbers, we don't be surprised to find our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's just a quick review. Let me give you a little idea of where I hope to go. First of all, uh, I, I, I want to drive home the point today that God makes himself known. God makes himself known. I also maybe want to help us to figure out what do we learn from a census? What does the, cen- what does the census teach us? And then hopefully we will find encouragement in numbers. And so with that, um, I'm going to open God's word and I will read our text today. Follow along with me and bear with me. Listen to God's inerrant word. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company, and there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall assist you, from Reuben, Elitzer, the son of Shedeur, from Simeon, Shelumiel, the son of Zerishaddai, from Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab, from Issachar, Nathanel, the son of Zuar, from Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helen, from the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amenahud, from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Padatzer, from Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideonai, from Dan, Ahiatzer, the son of Amenashadai, from Asher, Pagiel, the son of Akron, from Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Deul, from Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the head of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together, who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, head by head. As the Lord commanded Moses, so he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Of the people of Simeon, their generation, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, those of them who were listed according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed from the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Of the tribe of Gad, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of the names, from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Gad were 45,650. Of the people of Judah, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Judah were 74,600. Of the people of Issachar, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Issachar were 54,400. 
of the tribe of, of the people of Zebulun, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Zebulun were 57,400. Of the people of Joseph, namely the people of Ephraim, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Ephraim were 40,500. Of the people of Manasseh, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Manasseh were 32,200. Of the people of Benjamin, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Benjamin were 35,400. Of the people of Dan, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Dan were 62,700. Of the people of Asher, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Asher were 41,500. Of the people of Naphtali, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, hold, according to the number of names, from 20 years old up and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. And these, and these are those who were listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. And may God's word nourish and bless us. So as we begin this, um, it, it seems fitting that we should begin with the first few words. The Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses. And this should be obvious, but we should consider what's going on here, that God speaks to his people. God communicates with his people. That should strike us as an amazing thing that God speaks or, may, or decrees his purpose and his will to his people. God makes his ways known. What a wonderful thing. Let me tell you, talk about it, just a couple of things about God's word. First of all, when God speaks, it is not just idle speech. He doesn't just babble incoherently. He just doesn't chatter on about inconsequential things. When God speaks, stuff happens. Let me give you a couple of really good biblical examples of God's word having power. When God speaks, there, it is powerful because it accomplishes God's purpose. Genesis. It, and God said, let there be light. Don't miss the next part. And there was light. I can say that all day long. Let there be light. When God says let there be light, there actually is light. So when God speaks, his words actually accomplish 
what he desires it to accomplish. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 55. My word goes forth and it accomplishes what I purpose it to do. So just as the rain comes down on, on the ground and it, and it sprouts vegetation, so my word, when it goes forth, it does everything that I command it to do. It has purpose and it does what I purpose it to do. So God's word is powerful, but maybe uh, also it is purposeful. He doesn't just speak rambling, oh man, and then something happens. He's like, I have a purpose for what is going to happen. God's word have purpose. Perhaps maybe the most powerful words spoken. It is finished. Christ dying on the cross for our sins. It is finished. Purpose accomplished. Those were not idle, vain, silly words. They were not just merely the, the, the words of a, an incoherent dying man. But the words of purpose. I have borne the wrath of God for the sins of my people. It is done. Wow, we can sit here today knowing it is finished. So when God speaks, he speaks with purpose. And his intent, what he intends, actually comes about. But the other thing then that God speaks is in order for relationship. Because let's face it, communication is perhaps the central aspect of a relationship. God makes himself known that we might know how he relates to us and how we relate to him. There are many people today who, who would say, well, I don't know what God would want of a person. I, and so we make up all of these ideas in our minds of what God might think. And I know periodically um, I've read a, a very, very ancient Sumerian prayer in this church. And I read it not because we are um, ancient Sumerians or we agree with ancient Sumerian theology. But it's, it's, it's insightful because... We, we have this very ancient prayer written by some guy who we don't know. And he prays like this to the God and goddess who I may or may not know. He doesn't know who God is. Is God a God or a God a goddess? I don't know. I'm just going to cover all my bases. And he prays in this sense of, of the things I may or may not have done. I don't know what I've done, but something's going on. And he prays to this God or goddess that he doesn't know about things that he may or may not have done to offend or not offend this God or goddess. Our God is not like that. We know exactly who he is, what he desires, what pleases him, what displaces him. Why? Because God has spoken. And God is speaking to Moses and he's speaking to the people. God makes himself known that we might know him. We might know how he relates to us. And how we relate to him. In fact, God's speech in scripture is so ubiquitous that it is so all pervasive that when he's silent, it seems it is seen as something odd. So that, that just struck me. Don't be. Why are you silent? Oh, God, maybe you've said the same thing. Maybe in one of your prayers, you're like, why are you silent? The, the fact that God is so communicative that when he is silent, we're going, what's up? 
Something's not right. It is distressing. God now begins to speak to Moses and he speaks. And his words have purpose and they bring about his purpose. And his speech tells us who he is and how we relate to him. Today, we read in the book of Hebrews, which tells us much about the speech of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So a long time ago, God spoke in many ways. And he spoke to us through, to our fathers, through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word... Uh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word put on flesh and dwelt among us. We have the words of, we have Jesus Christ who is the Word of God. So God has spoken to us in many ways in the past, but in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. So the bottom line is God speaks, and His words have purpose, and they accomplish His purpose, and His words inform us of who He is and how we might live in in his presence. Just a quick little recap of this. First of all, we should note that God has not spoken to us about every single subject there is. God has not told us really anything about dark matter or black holes. Not that I know of. God has not spoken on every possible subject. But God has revealed himself in regards to how, basically, who he is, why things are broken. I mean, I think we, can't, we cannot read the news or look around the world and not say things are broken. And the first question is, why? What happened? God has told us why things are broken. God has told us why we continue to hurt and sin against one another. He's told us why things are broken. He's told us the remedy to the brokenness that is through Jesus Christ. And he's also told us what the destiny is of all those who either confess or refuse to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So he hasn't told us all things, but he has told us who he is, why we are broken, what the remedy to the brokenness is, and what the result of rejecting or accepting that remedy. And so in other words, the people in the book of Numbers, this is a group of people who are not ignorant of God's purposes for them. They are not ignorant people. They know exactly, exactly what God has done for them, who he is, and what he expects of them. They cannot get out in the wilderness and say, well, we didn't know. They know exactly what God has called them to do. And this, I believe, makes their rebellious all the more heinous. Because it's not as though they are ignorant. They know exactly who God is, and so their rebellion against God is even more rebellious. It is my conviction, having given some study to the Gospels, and it's particularly the study of the Gospel of John, my conclusion in the 
study of the Gospel of John. It's not explicit, but I think it's implicit. And that is that the religious leaders knew exactly who Jesus was when they crucified him. They did not think that he's just some false messiah or some nut job radical teacher. They knew exactly that this is the incarnate word of God who has come as Messiah to fulfill all of the promises of God. We know that. And we will kill him anyways. Makes the crime even more heinous. This is why when we get to, book, to the book of Acts and Peter and Paul speak to the Pharisees and say, and you can have forgiveness in his name. Even you who knew the Son of God and killed him are not, have not excluded yourself from the grace of God. So, for us, we have not been left without a clear understanding of God, nor have we been left without a clear understanding of his purposes. Let us not be people who repeat the errors of the Exodus generation, living in unbelief, grumbling, idolatry, putting Christ to the test. But if and when we do live in unbelief, grumble against God Almighty, lift up idols or put Christ to the test, let us also believe what he has spoken and believe the remedy that he has provided for us in Christ our Lord. So God has spoken. And so the very beginning of the book of Numbers says, I am clear. It is clear as to what I expect of this generation. And then we get into this first census. There's going to be another census at the end of the book of Numbers, or about chapter 26. And like today, censuses serve two purposes, or at least two purposes. Taxes and military. In the book of Exodus, we actually saw another census. Um, we won't go back there, but in the book of Exodus, there is a census. And it is for the purpose of extracting a temple tax. So they took a census to know who to tax. Just like today. I think there's a census year. They're counting people. They're counting people. They're going to try to determine tax basis and all sorts of various things. And the second reason or another reason why censuses were taken was who can fight our battles? Military use of the census. And that's what's going on here. Who do we have? Who can we count on when we go to war? And this is a military census. And they are basically, when you take a census, the, perhaps the, um, the central question of a census is this. Will you stand up and be counted? Are you, are you in or are you out? With a census, these individuals are being identified as the people of God. And as the people of God, they will have both responsibilities and privileges. Are you in or out? If you're in, you have responsibilities and privileges. You, we have a group of people who are bound together in covenant with God, and not only in covenant with God, but with one another. And this, you should note, this is no loose affiliation of some people assembled for no specific purpose. It is not just some little gathering. Well, we're kind of heading over to Canaan, and oh, you're going to Canaan? We're going to Canaan. How about we kind of just kind of hang out together and we travel to Canaan together? 
We can enjoy campfires with one another and we can have some fun conversations and perhaps, you know, we'll we'll develop some friendships. This is no loose affiliation of people who are just going to wander a couple of weeks across the desert until they get to some other place. This is a group of people who have been joined together in covenant and in covenant with God and they have joined together in covenant with one another. In fact, their existence Their very existence testifies that there is a God in heaven who has made all things and has called mankind to turn from their idols and honor the one who made them. Their existence testifies that there's a God in heaven. Their very existence, just them sitting in the desert, declares that there's a God in heaven. And we know this because when they go places, kings and Rulers of land say, oh, we've heard about you. We've heard how your God defeated Egypt. And he brought you across the the Red Sea. And he dried up the Red Sea. And he did all of these things. And he speaks to you. And he communes with you. And he leads you. We know who you are. Your existence testifies that there's a God in heaven. And their existence not only testifies that there is a God in heaven, but he is the God of all who calls men and women to repent and turn from their idols and turn to the living God. And a great example of this we find in Exodus chapter 12, 38. Because in Exodus 12, 38, what we find of those who came out of Egypt is not just all Israel. It says a mixed company came out of Egypt. That is, there were probably and we'll see this a little later on, a few Egyptians who came with them. A composite people who are identified as this new humanity covenanted together under the rulership and kingship of God Almighty. And so the census is, are you in or are you out? Some of the responsibilities of this new community um, well, is to determine those available for military service. Who can serve in the military? Well, the obvious observation there is that if you need a military, there's probably going to be a battle. I'm no genius, but that just seems to make sense to me. Those in covenant with God and with one another will encounter opposition and they will call, be called upon to do battle. And not just some individualistic, oh, I'm going to have to fight some battle from some group. No, as a group, as a covenant group of people, we as a united group of people are going to face opposition and I have responsibility to fight for you and you to battle for me. They are called to give support and well, they're called to give support through their taxes, but also to battle for one another. In other words, in the census, they are saying, you can count on me. Together, we will display the splendor and majesty of God Almighty. And when we don't, we will hold one another accountable. This is a total commitment. They are in. They do not come and go. They do not say, oh, well, there's another little group over there. I'm going to go hang out with them for a while and then hang out with another group. No, this is the, the family that I am committed to. I'm in. I'm part of this covenant community with God and with one another. 
and that this is where I stand. I will battle with you and for you. I will hold you accountable and you will hold me accountable. We will go to the land of promise together. This is such a serious issue that those who end up violating the covenant are removed. And we'll see that throughout the book of Numbers. That when they grow, in fact, the number one sin, the number one sin in the book of of Numbers is that they grumble against God. Grumbling. So if I were to ask you, what is the number, the top sin? Well, we'd probably come up with a bunch of different ones. But I'll bet you grumbling against God would not be on there. Grumbling against God caused the land to open up and swallow people whole. God removes the rebels from the midst. So, the first responsibility, the first part of this covenant community is there's a responsibility, not only to God, to make sure that his name is declared and that he is made holy, but also to one another, that I will protect you and I will uphold you and I will battle for you. That's our first, that's the first responsibility in this census. And it is a total commitment. You don't get to kind of drift in and out. But along with responsibilities come um, privileges. And the first privilege is of, be, of, being, of standing up and being counted is being part of a family with God as their father. These are not 605,000 disparate individuals disconnected from another one another. Once again, they are a family who are serving together and glorifying God together. They're not just some disparate group of people saying, hey, you do you. And I'll be me. And we'll just kind of do whatever we want to do. We are joined with one another. We are family. Now, here's the thing. To be part of this family, you had to be one of the 12 tribes. There was a, this was an exclusive community. You didn't. You had to be one of the 12 tribes. Well, you're thinking of my, you might be thinking, well, what about if somebody wasn't part of the 12 tribes? And what about that mixed multitude that you just mentioned? They weren't one of the 12 tribes. They were Egyptians or some other um, group. They weren't part of the 12. How did they get in? I'm glad you asked. Because in Exodus chapter 12, verse 48, it tells us that a foreigner would be circumcised along with the males of the family, and then they would be permitted to share in the Passover, and they would be treated as a native. So they were included into this group, this family. What I find interesting is that Moses does not create a 13th tribe of non-natives, non-Israelites. There is no 13th tribe of outsiders. Rather, outsiders are brought in and made part of the family. And so this is a group of people who have witnessed the presence of God in Egypt. They have recognized that he is Lord. They are willing to abandon their former life and be united to this new humanity. And probably our best example here is Rahab, right? Rahab was a Gentile. And the spies go into Jericho and she says, I've heard about you. We know who you are. And we know that God is with you. And by the way, it's really interesting because she says, not only she's speaking not just me personally, but the rulers in Jericho, the leaders of Jericho know who you are, but not just the leaders in Jericho, basically all the way, all the way north to the, to the, to the city of Dan, which is the northern part of Israel's boundary. We all know who you are. Everybody's heard about you. We know that God is with you. And so she basically, 
I'll paraphrase. She basically says, I want to be part of the family of God. Spare me, and I'll spare you. And they did, and they brought her in, and she became part of the family of God. And of course you know, part of the lineage of Christ. So she becomes part of the family. People become part of the family. So the first privilege of being of standing up and being counted in this in this census is saying, I'm in. I'm part of the family. But there's another privilege and that is inheritance. To be counted meant that your tribe, your clan, your family would be allotted a portion in the land of promise. That God had promised to his people that I will give you a portion of the land of Canaan. So to be counted was an act of faith, believing that God one day would fulfill all that he had promised and we would receive from him the land of promise that he guaranteed us. So at this time, they don't see the land of promise. They're not there. They can't view it. They're in the desert. It's not a land flowing with milk and honey. But they're saying, we believe God that there is a land of promise and that we have a a stake in it and that not only does our nation have a stake in it, but my family, me and my family, we have a place in the land of promise, just as he promised Abraham that we will have a promise here. And so there are responsibilities when you stand up and are counted. There are privileges when you stand up and are counted. Those privileges, some of those privileges we don't see, that are not seen yet. But this is no blind leap for the people of Israel. This is no blind leap for the people being counted in the book of Numbers. And it's no blind leap, and their testimony of God's faithfulness is the large numbers. 605,000 people. I'm sorry, 603, 550. There's a lot of debate amongst Um, students of the Bible as to accounting for these large numbers and I won't spend time with that with those details today that's beyond the scope of this message but almost all of the attempts to deal with those large numbers all end up with a huge population even those who reduced that 605,000 um, or 603,000 down and lowered, even they end up with a very large population. I guess my, my point is this. These huge numbers are a testimony of God's faithfulness. So it is no blind leap to believe that God has promised us something and he will deliver on, our pro- on that promise. And that is no big leap. Why is it no big le- leap? Look at the thousands, the hundreds of thousands of people who have come out of Egypt and who say, every day I wake up and I can't get any alone time. Because people are everywhere. If there are 603,000 people, that would put about 2 million people um, in this group. That would spread over an area of about 5 miles. i got to hike 5 miles just to get outside the camp for a few moments by myself. 
These huge numbers, though, are a testimony of God's faithfulness. Every day they lived in the midst of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Every day they woke up and they might complain, thinking, man, I'd like to get alone. I'd like some peace and quiet. But also every day they knew. And there was a living testimony that God is faithful to his promise. Because you see, God promised Abraham that one day your descendants were going to be as the sand of the sea and your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. And at the time, Abraham had no children whatsoever. And now there are people, 603,550 people every single day. I wake up and realize that God is good. And that his word is solid and I can count on the things he said. That inheritance that I've never seen, it's as good as done. I can put it in the bank. And every day I have testimony because I look around me and see God's fulfillment of his promise and purposes. Let me just real quickly point forward one of the great promises that God said that Abraham, your Descendants will be as the sand of the sea, the stars of the sky. I think he's saying they are innumerable. You're not going to be able to count them. But we counted this group, 603,550. We get to the book of Revelation, and I saw before the throne a multitude innumerable from every tribe and tongue and people and nation praising and worshiping God. That's good as done. You can put that in the bank. Every day they wake up, they're reminded of God's presence. They are reminded of God's faithfulness. In other words, God has spoken and God has brought to pass exactly what he has brought to pass. These are not people who dwell in ignorance. They are people who live in the midst of the promises of God and he does what he says he's going to do. So I'll conclude with this. God has spoken. God has spoken. He has spoken to us today in His Son, Jesus Christ. And I would exhort you, if you've not already called upon the name of the Lord and been forgiven of your sins, look around the world and see how things are broken. Just this week, moral and natural evil, moral evil in riots, murders, carnage, natural evil in hurricanes. And we say things are broken. Jesus' response to that was very simple. You need to repent. Something similar could happen to you today. So you need to call upon the name of the Lord. So these ma- so the book of Numbers are going to inform the book of Numbers will inform us about God, how God has spoken to us. We're going to see his son revealed to us. And they are go- and God has spoken and he has told us about himself, but he also tells us a lot about us. And so as we go through the book of Numbers, I hope that we will see the things, we will see God more clearly, we will see ourselves in light of God's beauty as well, and that this church, this little local church, will not fall into the sins of the Exodus generation who grumbled and put Christ to the test and rebelled, but rather we, like the people out in the wilderness, 
would display, our very existence would display the splendor and glory and beauty of God who has called us together as a family and made us his own and made great promises for us and we can be certain of those promises and we will entrust ourselves to the God who has called us and he has drawn us into a covenant with him and we are in a covenant with one another and we will glorify God as we do battle for one another, with one another, and we all anticipate the promises that he has made for us. Father, we give you praise. We give you thanks. We thank you that you have given to us a census. You've given us numbers and names. And perhaps they're unfamiliar names to us and they're strange numbers, but we see, Father God, that there is a purpose for them and that you are glorified in these things. So, Lord, let us follow after you this day. Let us love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let us love our neighbor as ourselves and be faithful to you. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.